you know, Paul, Paul did not write this to us. He didn't have us in mind. Yeah. So all of Paul's letters are occasional in that there was an occasion for him to write them. And people yeah. argue over, you know, what the occasion was for Romans, but in others of his letters, it's more, a little bit more clear what the occasion was. And, but the occasion was not someone in the year 2021 is going to need advice on sex. That's not what he had in mind when he wrote this. Yeah. Um, we are not his audience for it. And, and when we think of ourselves as the audience, we're doing a little bit of violence to the text right off the bat, I think. I wonder what was it like To see a light so low in the sky To follow it blindly To see it shining so bright Did the stars know the light would show Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host. This is episode number 146, and it's my conversation with Eric C. Smith, uh, Professor Eric Smith. Uh, He wrote a book called Paul the Progressive, Paul the Progressive question mark, so Paul the Progressive Uh, Subtitled, The Compassionate Christian's Guide to Reclaiming the Apostle Paul as an Ally. Um, I have been very honest with uh, Eric in this episode. I have a love-hate relationship with the Apostle Paul. Mostly hate. uh, Because, like, what do you do with Paul? Right? Like, a lot of his letters have been used to outcast women. um, Outcast LGBTQ people set up the Roman road of salvation, right? Everybody's a sinner and God's angry and you need to repent. If you don't, you're going to go to hell, right? And that's all these verses taken out of Romans. And man, it's just been like, what do I do with Paul? You know, as I've grown in my faith and I've evolved and I've changed and I've rethought things, I'm like, man, what do I do with Paul? Should I just forget Paul? <laughs> like, should we just like should I just pull like a what's that Thomas Jefferson like cut holes in this Bible and they get rid of the parts you didn't like? Like should we do that? Like what do I do with Paul? And so I love this book because what Eric does masterfully is puts Paul in context. Number one, uh, reminds us that Paul was writing letters to people, um, and he wasn't necessarily intending those letters to be read for all of eternity. Uh, and then, like, have the church make declarations of what is right and what is wrong. Like, that wasn't really his intention when he was writing the letter. And not only that, but a lot of the letters attributed to Paul, uh, as we're going to hear in a minute, they weren't written by Paul. Like, scholars are unanimous that he only wrote, like, a handful of the letters that are attributed to him. Other ones are, like, forgeries or people writing in his name to make different points. Like, really interesting stuff. And so... This book and this conversation really helped me uh, reframe Paul and kind of redeem the parts of Paul that I felt were were lost in my own uh, in my own journey. So anyway, I think you're really going to love this. I think you're really going to enjoy uh, this conversation. So uh, buckle up. A few things first, though. Uh, Number one, Patreon, Patreon.com/slash What If Project is a place where you can go to support the show financially. 
uh, along with buymeacoffee.com slash whatifproject. I'll put the links to those things uh, in the show notes. If this has helped you, encouraged you, inspired you, pushed you forward in your faith, uh, please consider making a either monthly donation or one-time donation, uh, whatever it is that you would want to do. It helps keep the lights on here at the What If Project. Uh, pays for the hosting fees and uh, various things like that. We also have the Heretic Shop. Uh, if you want to buy some hoodies, some t-shirts, some some swag. I don't know how much longer I'm going to keep the Heretic Shop up. I mean, it sells some stuff, but like not enough for me to justify paying the, what is it, $30 a month to kind of keep it running. I don't know if I'm going to keep it up for that much longer. I might take it down, maybe put it back up again. I don't know, but it's still there for now. Uh, the Heretic Shop, I'll put the link to it uh, in the show notes. Special music today is by my friend Forrest Clay. He is about to release a brand new uh, album. And uh, he's given me a couple songs off of it, um, a few of his other songs as well that I have. But really good guy, uh, really good music. And his music tells a story. And that's what I like because you can just feel like the passion. You can feel the, the heart come through. In his music. Uh, so head over to Spotify, uh, Apple Music, all the places. Look up Forrest Clay and uh, download his music. And I will say too that if you're a Patreon supporter at the $30 a month tier, uh, that what that tier does is it gives you once a quarter, we get to sit down with a previous podcast guest to pick their mind over Zoom. So like last, I uh, was the last quarter, we sat down with Jay Baker. And people got to ask him questions about his life, about his upbringing, about his own deconstruction, about his church, about his relationship with God, ask him questions about theology, the Bible, all the different things. And he was very gracious in answering our questions. Uh, but this quarter, we're going to sit down with Forrest Clay. And uh, he's going to be a guest uh, probably in a few weeks, but he's going to sit down and play for us on Zoom, do like a live concert for us. We're going to play his music for us. And then talk to us about the different songs and the meaning behind the songs and how that song ties into his life and his journey. We're going to get to ask him questions. It's going to be really, really cool. That's coming up on May. Uh, was it May? Ah, man, now I got to look. I don't want to give you the wrong date. Hold on. Let me pull up my phone. Oh, we're doing this live, live, live. Not even going to edit it out. We're just going to let it go. He is coming on to the show. On Friday, May 7th at 8 p.m., uh, he will do a Zoom session uh, with our $30 a month or higher Patreon supporters. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, it's good music. He's a good guy. And uh, so if you want in on that, head over to Patreon, check it out, uh, sign up. And you know what? Even, even this, like I always tell people, if there's something that I'm doing, or Patreon supporters, and somebody's like, I really would like to be part of that, but I I can't do a Patreon tier, or I don't want to, if you just shoot me a message, I'm not going to say no <laughs> to you coming into the thing. Like, if you want to hear this music, you're not a Patreon supporter, yes, the answer is yes. Just shoot me a message uh, on Facebook or whatever, and uh, when the time comes, I will shoot you the Zoom link, and you are more than welcome, of course, to join us. I don't have any any like secret levels of things that only certain people can get to. Uh, if you want to be part of it, you are always more 
then welcome. So all of that to say, my friends, uh, once again, this is episode number 146. And it's my conversation with Eric Smith. Let's do some redeeming of the Apostle Paul. Let's roll the tape. Deconstructed these walls and I found a business Where the company line was the only way to get paid We built a church uncertainty that fears everything Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to introduce to you our guest. His name is Eric Smith. He's a professor of early Christianity and wrote a book called Paul the Progressive, subtitled The Compassionate Christian's Guide to Reclaiming the Apostle as an Ally. So Eric, welcome to the podcast. I look forward to connecting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you. So before we get uh, too far into your book, maybe take a few moments to tell us uh, about yourself. Who are you? Uh, what do you do? Maybe some of the highlights of your, your journey and your work. Yeah. So uh, I kind of have two professional lives right now, and they're, they're connected to each other. Um, on the one hand, I'm a uh, professor at the Isle of School of Theology, and I teach um, you know New Testament and early Christianity kind of stuff. And I mm direct a new doctor of ministry program that we have in prophetic leadership. And on the other sort of side of things, I still uh, work part-time in a progressive Christian congregation in the Denver area. And um, so those two things together, you know, sort of form the core of what I do. And I see a lot of, you know, overlap between them, obviously. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I spend most of my time doing. I also, have three small kids, so they keep me busy. Just and, a little um, bit, right? A little bit busy. A little bit busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have one daughter. She's three, and she keeps, keeps us very busy. <laughs> so I can imagine well, three. <laughs> one three-year-old keeps keeps you busier than I have a, a nine and 11 and a 13-year-old. So Gotcha. So you're past the toddler age. Yeah. So prophetic leadership, what is that about? That's a program we just launched about a, a year and a half ago that um, sort of equips people in whatever ministry context that they have, you know, uh, not just congregational ministry, but other kinds of uh, ministry as well to push forward in whatever context they're in, whatever field they're in to think about, um, you know, doing things differently, doing things with integrity and leading into a future, you know, that sometimes looks kind of cloudy from the perspective of congregations and institutions. So we're trying to equip people to do that kind of work. Is it for like people who maybe like, so not just in the church, but people who let's say they let's say like a podcaster, somebody like that, who's doing some kind of ministry work and they're looking to like hone their skills a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. We have uh, folks who um, have, have applied in sort of the nonprofit um, sector. We have some chaplains, hospital chaplains, That's cool. sort of traditional congregational mm-hmm. ministers, the whole range really. That's really cool. So as a, as a new Testament, like professor and someone who's obviously steeped in that, what are some of the what are some of the thinkers who have kind of made an impact on you? In the field of New Testament studies? Yeah. Um, yeah. So some of my favorites are um, people like Krister Stendhal, who um, was one of the early people rethinking Paul. Okay. Um, I, I really like the work of um, Paula Friedrichsen, who's, who's um, a Paul scholar, but also sort of a scholar of early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism in general. Mm-hmm. She's um, She's really thoughtful and creative. 
probably my favorite scholar working right now is uh, Maya Katrositz, who does just fantastic work about early Christianity and identity and material culture and thinking about how um, the influence of empire presses down on, you know, everything that we call early Christianity and, and yeah. sort of twists people um, in the way that they think about themselves and their communal connections. Yeah. I like her work a lot. That's awesome. Yeah, I like asking that question because I grew up in the kind of evangelical world. So it's like the same names all the time. And now that I'm kind of outside of those lines and exploring people like yourself and like your work, like I'm like, oh, the, the rabbit hole is very deep <laughs> of things that are, are different than what I'm used to. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to get lost in it, but it's a lot of fun too. Yeah, that's for sure. So let's talk a little bit about your book. Uh, I'm one of those people, like I mentioned before we hit record, uh, who you describe in the early pages of the book, like somebody who really struggles with with Paul. So uh, let me ask you this, like, let's say that we're in one of your classes right now and you ask the students what they think of the apostle Paul. And I can be very opinionated sometimes when I want to be in sort of a, a loud mouth. So let's say I raise my hand and I say something like, uh, I've always had a love-hate relationship with Paul. And this is true because sometimes he comes off to me as like an an arrogant jerk to, to put it bluntly. Like he seems like sometimes like he hates women, hates gays, very different towards slavery, has a problem with Jewish people. And he's passionate about like strange things. Like you talk in your book about like women covering their heads so that when they pray, like angels don't get tempted to lust, like whatever the heck that means. And at times it's almost like he comes off as he knows more than, than Jesus. Like when I was younger and I identified again, like as evangelical, Paul was was the man, like Romans was the meat and potatoes of the Christian faith. But as I've evolved out of that world, he starts to make very little sense to me. And it starts to feel like Christians sometimes look to Paul because although Jesus came to show us how to live and he talked about stuff, it's like Paul came along to show us what Jesus really meant. <laughs> so it's like Paul's almost looked at as like the, the answer to all of the questions for Christians. So like if I'm a student in your class and I give you that, those feelings about Paul, what is, what is your response to that? Yeah. And that happens all the time in my classes. <laughs> so I'm that, not alone. That, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and actually that's, that's not so unlike how I feel. Cause I too came out of a evangelical background yeah, sure. and where, where Paul is sort of the main deal, you know, most mm -hmm. of evangelical Christianity is really Pauline Christianity, I think, um, which is, you know, it can be life-giving in its own kind of way. But, mm -hmm. um, but as I moved out of that context and as my students have moved out of that context, I think it, Paul makes less and less sense. Mm -hmm. And so um, the first thing I say to people who, who claim to be, be ambivalent about Paul or to hate Paul is, yeah, that, that makes some sense. Like it, it's, it's reasonable for you to feel that way about Paul because he has his work and, and work attributed to him has been really harmful um, in lots of different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And what I sort of do is just challenge students you know, to see if they can change their mind, to see if they can discover a Paul that is not quite so oppressive, that isn't so, um, you know, harmful in the world. I think you still, at the end of the day, end up with a Paul who is, you know, hard to get along with. Yeah. Um, he's, he's still a lot to handle. He's mm -hmm. not warm and fuzzy at any point. He's kind of a jerk. I think, as you said, but, <laughs> um, but he's more under, and I, I think so too. In fact, I tried to get the publisher um, to let me call this book. Paul was not an asshole. Nice. I don't know if I can say Excellent. that on your podcast. Go for or it. Not, Drop but, it. Because <laughs> um, my, one of my mentors and my colleague now, Pamela Eisenbaum's book is called Paul was not a Christian. Mm. And I, I thought that would be a fun play on words, but that didn't fly. Didn't fly. So yeah, I think just trying to discover a Paul who's not an asshole um, yeah. is, is, 
worth trying to do. Yeah. It's so hard. Like I'm finding, like, as I was reading your book and reading some other stuff on Paul, like it's very hard to wrap my mind around a different way to read him being raised to read him in a very single way. Like even this morning I was reading uh, from a passage in the, in the lectionary for this week from first Corinthians about how uh, the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe and they're perishing. And like, like, how do I read this apart from the normal believe the right thing or go to hell? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's so hard sometimes to wrap my mind around different ways to read Paul. Yeah. And that's, it's so ingrained, you know, that even people who are not especially religious read Paul through a, what we call the traditional lens or the, yeah. the Lutheran perspective, even if you don't mean to, that's the, sort of the default. And so it yes. can be really difficult to shift that paradigm and see him differently. But yeah. I think it bears so many rewards when you do. It really does. The, the effort to put forth in doing that bears a lot of fruit for sure. Mm -hmm. So you've got four ground rules for reading Paul. Um, one, we have to know what Paul didn't write. Or, sorry, that we have to know that Paul didn't write everything that's attributed to him. Two, we have to trust Paul's own words more than the words of others about him. Uh, three, we have to trust Paul's actions as evidence of his commitments. And four, we have to recognize that we are always viewing Paul through a particular lens. So obviously your whole book is kind of about this and you explore different topics. But what I want to ask you is like of those four ground rules, which one do you think if ignored kind of has the power to generate the most misunderstanding? regarding Paul and his work. Yeah, I'm tempted to say either the first or the fourth, um, yeah. but I'll, I'll talk about the first maybe um, because the whole book is really about the fourth one. Yeah. But the first one is, you know, the, there's a lot of things with Paul's name on it in the New yeah. Testament. Um, the, the most of the New Testament actually has Paul's name on it uh, by the number of books. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, scholars are, are not unanimous about this, but they, they divide... Um, Paul's writings attributed to Paul into three kind of piles. Mm -hmm. And one pile is often called the undisputed Pauline epistles. And then there are uh, two other piles that are, um, you know, disputed that people mm -hmm. argue. And there's, there's really good scholars on both sides who would ar make arguments. And then there's a pile called the pastoral epistles, which I think most scholars think, you know, don't come directly from the pen of Paul um, with, with some who would claim that they do. So mm -hmm. that even that as a starting point, you have to recognize, you know, that, just because it's in the, the Bible with Paul's name on it does not necessarily mean that he wrote it. And even within those undisputed epistles, say, for example, 1 Corinthians, there are sections of some of those letters that are disputed or seem to be later editions or uh, scribal, um, you know, pious, pious forgeries, as some people would call it, you know, yeah. things that scribes added either by accident or um, in an attempt to correct the text somehow. Sure. That was a big one for me. Like I first... Like in seminary, I was never taught that. I mean, I went to, I got my master's, I got my D-man and I've taken tons of New Testament classes. Some classes just focused on Paul's letters. And like, I don't, I don't think I ever heard that Paul didn't maybe write those books. <laughs> and when I started to like deconstruct and started to ask like a lot of questions, I picked up some of Bart Ehrman's texts. And that, that's a rabbit hole. I'll talk about a rabbit hole, but like I started to read some of his things about this very thing that Paul likely didn't write all of these letters. And it just totally blew my mind, but also gave me a lot of freedom because as you say in the book, like a lot of the, the issues that I have with Paul in regards to him, sometimes being seeming like a real jerk, a homophobe, stuff like that. Like 
against women. A lot of that stuff isn't, is probably stuff he didn't really write. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem if you find the whole New Testament canon authoritative, right? There, yeah. For some people, you know, the authority doesn't come from it being written by Paul. It comes from it being in the Bible. Sure. And so you still have to contend with that question. But I think if we're thinking about Paul himself, it does help clarify, okay, that's why this sounds so different from some of these other things that I find beautiful and life-giving. Yeah. Maybe for our listeners who maybe aren't too familiar with this, like to give them like a teaser from your book, like what is one of those, what's one of those passages that kind of raise your eyebrows to, oh, Paul maybe didn't write this. Uh, like what's one of those big ones? Sure. So first Corinthians 14 is probably the, the, um, the, the most prominent example in first Corinthians 14, 33 through like 36, mm. um, in the NRSV and in a lot of modern translations, you'll see that that section of first Corinthians is actually in parentheses. And that is, um, to, to sort of signal to the reader, okay, there's something weird going on here. And mm. what's, what, what is weird about it is that in some ancient manuscripts, those verses appear in other places, mm. um, which, which kind of says, okay, probably what happened is that um, someone was writing in the margins of their text, you know, a commentary on the text. And then the next person to come along and copy that text was uncertain. Okay. Does this belong to the text of first Corinthians or is this a commentary? Mm. They added it in the fact that it floats around whenever something floats around in the text, that's a signal that, you know, it, it, it probably isn't original to the text, whatever original means. Mm. So um, that's, and that's the section that says women should be silent in churches for they're not permitted to speak or they should be subordinate. Mm. If they have a question, let them go ask their husbands. So that's a, you know, super consequential couple of verses of first Corinthians and they get kind of hung around Paul's neck, but chances are really pretty good that Paul didn't write that. That's someone else commenting on what Paul wrote. And they were just spliced in later. Yeah. Now I'm looking at my Bible. I have an NIV Bible and I don't have any parentheses in my Bible. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, by the way, a signal that that the Bible you have is already doing an awful lot of interpretation for you. They're trying to lead um, me astray, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no parentheses in the right. Greek, right? Right. Uh, it, any punctuation at all you see in your Bible is someone's interpretation. Yeah. So um, it's worth just remembering that whatever you Bible you have, someone is already interpreting it for you. Yeah. Now, how does the average like how does like I think of myself like, and I've had tons of like seminary education. Like, how does somebody who doesn't have that and they aren't aware of this stuff, like pick up a Bible and know, like, is this, like, is this a, a good translation for me to be reading? Like, what, what are your thoughts about that? Um, you know, I think that's a great question. Um, the Bible translation is really um, a pretty denominational thing. And it's a pretty, in some ways, capitalistic thing. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, people are trying to sell books, right. sell Bibles. <laughs> sure. And so I think, you know, a good way to, a good place to start would be if you have a religious tradition, maybe start with that religious traditions, um, you know, edition of it. My sense. favorite New Testament right now, um, for sure is the Jewish annotated New Testament. Yeah. I love which, that. Um, yeah. I think you've had, uh, Amy Gillivine and Mark Brettler on your show yep. before. Yeah. And I require all my New Testament students to get that book. Um, you know, because not only is there the translation and the question of how things are translated, but there's also the notes that accompany it and how people yeah. are, how, how you have it explained to you. And so 
I think for people looking for a fresh view of the New Testament, that's a great place to start with the Jewish yeah. annotated New Testament. Definitely. Now you said that the fourth ground rule is also super important. So we landed kind of on the first one, but the fourth one, we have to recognize that we are always viewing Paul through a particular lens. We were saying earlier, you know, um, even if you don't mean to, you're probably reading Paul through this traditional perspective. Mm. And what that traditional perspective says, it, it comes from Martin Luther largely, it says, you know, that Paul uh, is just burdened by this um, debt that he feels like he owes to God. He feels perpetually inadequate before God mm. and um, almost sort of pathologically unable to be good enough. Mm. And he reads Paul as feeling the same way. And so he reads all of Paul, especially Romans, but all of Paul as um, sort of an account of Paul's inadequacy and the way he's trying to come to terms with that and the way he see Jesus sees Jesus as a, um, as a fix for that. Mm. So that's not a particularly ancient way to read Paul. It only goes back about 500 years and it's certainly not the only way. And it's not the best way I think, but it's the way most of us are acculturated um, to read Paul because that's the way sort of mainstream Protestant Christianity has read it. And that's a very, anti-Jewish way to read it because it sees mm -hmm. Judaism as this dead religion of works that needs to be rejected the same way Luther thought the Catholics was Catholicism was a, a dead religion of works that needs to be rejected it and it's a um it's one that relies really heavily on guilt and shame um, mm -hmm. in a way that's not especially helpful I don't think yeah and I guess that's true for the the larger Bible as a whole I mean we all come to the Bible with our different experiences our different life circumstances. And I think that all of that filters kind of the way that we read the text. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's hard not to read it with, with the filter already in place. Yeah. Some would say impossible. <laughs> Probably true. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. So chapter three of the book um, for me was the big one. Uh, Paul, the homophobe is the uh, title. And you talk about the, uh, the clobber verses that are attributed to Paul um, and the verses used by the church to kind of outcast uh, LGBTQ people. And for me, again, raised in the evangelical world, you know, these verses were drilled into my head at a very young age. And it's taken me a long time and a lot of mental and heart energy to kind of untangle those verses from uh, how I was raised to think about LGBTQ people. Uh, but today, you know, I'm inclusive, affirming, have no doubts in my mind. Uh, I'll go up to bat for any LGBTQ person, um, you know, against a non-affirming Christian. But to be honest, like my brain doesn't always feel like it's fully caught up to where my heart is because the teaching I received again is so ingrained uh, in my brain. And one of the verses that gives me the most trouble, and I, I even had trouble wrestling with it through, through your book, it's the one in Romans chapter one. And that seems to be a lot of the, the one that often comes up like in our Facebook group and stuff like that, where people ask about the clobber verses. I was wondering if you could kind of give us a bird's eye view of that uh, particular passage and maybe put it into some context for us. Professor, take us to school. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, it is in some ways the most difficult of these because yeah. some of the others could be explained away. Okay, Paul didn't write it, but Paul mm -hmm. wrote this. This is from Paul. No one disputes that. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think with, with Paul's writings and with any text, you always have to kind of take a step back and, and ask, does the text say what I've been reading it to say? So that's mm -hmm. a good first step uh, of mm -hmm. interpretation is just, you know, asking what's the difference between if I had to recite the text back to myself, um, what do I think it says versus what does it actually say? Yeah. And for me, when I do that with, um, with 
with this Romans uh, 1, say 26, mm -hmm. it reads, for this reason, God gave them up to, to, to degrading passions. And what's interesting about that right off the bat is that humans are in the passive position, that it's God doing the action and sort of uh, abandoning people to their passions. And, you know, so um, that to me suggests that that this activity that Paul is so worried about, which is uh, women exchanging natural intercourse for unnatural, is not the cause of sin. It's not the sin itself, but it's it's what uh, Paul understands as a reversal of what's natural mm. coming from the way people are and what God was sort of required to do. Mm. So Paul here is relying on this, um, you know, notion of naturalness. Um, mm. He thinks sex, certain kinds of sex, are are natural. And I think, you know, you could imagine how he gets there, that, that having sex in a way that is procreative, okay, that mm -hmm. sounds natural. And any kind of sex that doesn't procreate is unnatural. That seems to be the way he's thinking through it. And mm -hmm. so Paul says, okay, if people are doing the wrong kind of sex, it must be because, um, you know, they're doing this unnatural sex. It must be because God has let them, God yeah. has given them freedom to do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, to, those categories, though, don't work for us anymore. Yeah, we were talking earlier about how many kids we have. We have three kids, and so we are actively trying not to have any more kids. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, my, my spouse and I, we don't, we, we don't have what Paul would consider natural sex. We mm. have unnatural sex because it's not procreative. Lots yeah. of people in this world don't have procreative sex. There's people who can't have children. There's people who don't want to have children. Mm. And so, you know, if the category is natural and unnatural, then probably most most sex going on in the world is unnatural. unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. And so mm. it just, the, the, the logic that you have to follow in order to think that Paul here is talking about homosexuality really falls apart quickly. If you read what the text is actually saying. Yeah. And you said in your book too, I mean, like this is, you have to remember this is a letter, right? That Paul right. wrote. So it's like, we're really looking over his shoulder as he's writing this letter or we're opening his mail or we're kind of reading through a page of his diary, so to speak. Like we're taking, this one, this one idea kind of out of context of a context that was really for a particular context of people going through particular issues, you know, in a particular time of history. Right. Maybe a fifth ground rule would be, it's not about you, Glenn. It's not right. about you, Eric. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, Paul, Paul did not write this to us. He didn't have us in mind. Yeah. So uh, all, uh, all of Paul's letters are occasional in that there was an occasion for him to write them. And people argue over, you know, what the occasion was for Romans, but in others of his letters, it's more, a little bit more clear what the occasion was. And, but the occasion was not someone in the year 2021 is going to need advice on sex. That's not what he had in mind when he wrote this. Yeah. Um, we are not his audience for it. And, and when we think of ourselves as the audience, we're doing a little bit of violence to the text right off the bat, I think. Yeah. And I think that's true. I mean, again, for the wider Bible, I mean, I don't think there, it would be hard to say that there's any writer of the Bible who probably sat down to write something thinking that that letter, that document, whatever was going to be kept for all of history and then used right. in a church setting in the year 2021 to make hard, fast rules about what is and what isn't acceptable in our world. That's like completely removed, you know, centuries and centuries removed from, from that original context. So it just like when you, when you slow down to think about it that way, I think it really puts a lot of things in perspective. Right. Uh, you know, I think, 
Paul, I often say, would have been appalled. And I don't mean people always think <laughs> I'm trying to make a pun there. But I think he would have been really disturbed by the idea that his writing became scripture because he had a pretty high view of, of scripture, the scripture he knew. Yeah. And he would be he would be super surprised and a little bit disturbed, I think, to know that we're reading him alongside something like Genesis. That could be a good follow-up book. Paul is appalled. <laughs> yeah. The, the appalled Paul, Paul, right? The appalling yeah. Paul. <laughs> appalled so, and appalling. Yeah, right. So another question for you also, Romans, has to do with salvation. And uh, if I had a dollar for like every, uh, let, me, uh, let me say this first. I went to a private Christian school from fourth through 12th grade, uh, Bible college, four years, seminary, all evangelical. So if I had a dollar for every time I heard the phrase of the Roman road and was taught how to share the story of salvation with these seven or eight, again, random verses ripped out of this random letter to the Romans, I'd be like a rich man. But nowadays, like I see salvation very differently than I used to. But if I'm being honest, you know, again, whereas I, I used to think I had all the answers regarding salvation. Nowadays, I'm comfortable saying there's a lot I don't know, but it's still very hard to kind of un, un intertwine, un, unwind those verses that are deeply ingrained into my head to think about them in different ways. So maybe help us frame a little bit of Paul's understanding um, of salvation. I think the, the most honest place to start is with what you said, which is, I just don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think, again, going back to the purpose of the letter, I don't think that's mm -hmm. what Paul wanted to do when he was writing Romans, much less any of his other books. Mm. Um, that's not what he, he didn't sit down and, and think, oh, okay, I'm going to explain salvation now. What he, um, so when you read it that way, and, and yeah. I too would be uh, wealthier than I am if I had a dollar for every time <laughs> I've heard right. the Romans road. Um, yeah, so I, I'm tempted to say, you know, I think there's people who know what the Romans road is and people who don't, and that's an interesting cultural touchstone. Oh, yeah, we can even, uh, if you want to just slow, <laughs> slow down and we'll just kind of explain what the Roman road is. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I think people who know it, know it well. And those who don't, it's going to be a They're twitching phrase. right now. The ones who know it are twitching. Right? <laughs> Having a little flashback. Exactly. Um, I had to actually go look it up when I wrote this book because I I had you know I had it memorized back in my evangelical days, but it had yeah. left my brain, which is a, a real blessing. I, I have the book in front of me. I can. Uh, okay. Let's see. But but what it does, as you said earlier, is it sort of abstracts a line here and there from from Romans yeah. and out of out of order, out of context, and creates from it this. Um, uh, paradigm i guess of how bad humans are and how much we need uh, a, an external savior to come and pluck us out of our badness yeah um and and that's what you know i guess that's what evangelicals think paul thinks he's doing in this letter and i don't yeah. think that's true at all yeah we've got uh let's see romans chapter 1 2021 recognize that god is the sovereign creator of the universe and of me individually recognize that we are subordinate to god Step two, Romans 3.23, realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the big one. And that includes me. Uh, Romans 5.8, understand that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, including mine. Uh, then we have Romans 6.23, know that without Jesus, we are doomed to perish because of our sin, including me. <laughs> Romans 10.9 and 10, confess the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Having faith in Jesus is the only one who can deliver us. Uh, then Romans 10, 13, be assured that this simple act is sufficient for salvation. Romans eleven thirty six, make Jesus the Lord of our life. Yeah. I think it's just so like, again, like back, 
in evangelism classes, like in college, um, you know, uh, high school, youth group stuff like this made perfect sense. But like to think of it, like, like you said, like did Paul, when Paul was writing this letter to the Romans, was he at all interested in, <laughs> in laying out like what, what is the course for salvation? Or did we read that into his text? Because like, did we make the text answer a question that it was never really, it's not really built or sustained to answer? That's a great question because there is a sense in which I think Romans is about salvation. I'm not sure, sure you know, that's the right word for it, but he mm. is writing Romans with the purpose in mind of explaining to some people how this works. Yeah. Um, however, I don't think he's doing it anything like the way that, that the Romans road would assume he's yeah. doing it. Yeah. So. Uh, Cause he's trying to figure know, out how Jesus works with Israel, like how these, all these pieces fit together. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so you have to take a step back and ask, okay, why did Paul write Romans? Right. And there's, there's lots of answers to this. Um, my personal opinion is he, as he says in chapter 15, he wants to go to Spain and he wants the Roman churches to send him onward to Spain with some resources and some encouragement. So he's, he's writing this as sort of a, as one of my students put it, a Kickstarter Mm -hmm. video. This is his way to kind of say, look, I want to do this thing. Could you help me? And in order to, to make that sales pitch, he needs to kind of explain himself because he hmm. maybe has this reputation. He didn't found the church in Rome, so they're not, they don't belong to him. And he needs to kind of say who he is and, and earn their, uh, their support. And so as part of doing that, I think he is talking to um, the churches in Rome, which seem to be, people argue over this too, but seem to be composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Hmm. Um and that seems to be a point of contention in the Roman churches that, that there's these two ways of life, these two lineages that are, um, you know, intertwined with each other, but also coming into conflict with each other in certain kinds of ways. Hmm. And so he is, I think, interested in explaining to, for example, Gentiles, um, hey, you are now being invited into this way of salvation from Israel's God. Hmm. Um, but and he's he's doing that, you know, in the service of of um, his own mission. And he's also explaining to Jews, hey, here's how the Gentiles fit into this very old story that you're already a part of. But he's not uh, he's not telling the story that the Romans road thinks he's telling. If you think about that for even a second, you know, Paul would have to be a pretty terrible writer to write this 16 chapter book um, that needs to be reorganized and with so dramatically and have just a few verses pulled out of it for it to make sense. Yeah. You have to really ignore most of Romans to get the Romans <laughs> road to make sense. Right. And so you, I think you have to have a pretty low opinion of scripture to pull that out of Romans. You yeah. have to flatten a lot of complexity. So like, let's show everybody what Paul really meant <laughs> with, these, with these six verses. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's a, a thing that Christians do, you know, speaking as a Christian, yeah. we tend to abstract the Bible into something sure. that will fit on a bracelet or a locket or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. And that yeah. doesn't really do it any favors. Yeah, that's very true. So as a New Testament professor, then like how I'll put you on the spot, how do you understand like salvation through like the lens of Paul? Like what is, what does salvation mean to you? I just published an article on this, uh, trying to get at some of this, this question, because, um, you know, 
I think Romans 15, going back to that, he, he uses words of completeness. He says, I have completed, I have plurao, I have finished all the work that I have to do in the East. And now I want to come West to you and then to Spain. Mm. And to me, those words of I'm done, you know, I've, I'm com- I've completed my work suggests that Paul could not have thought of salvation in the way we think of salvation yeah. or the way most Christians think of salvation, mm. which is a sort of retail model where every person needs to needs to have a uh, an experience, a relationship. They need to come to Jesus in their own way. That can't have been what Paul meant because mm. he said he was done with it. And there are millions of people living in the Greek East and in the Eastern Roman Empire, and he could not have talked to them all and converted them all. He's not mm. finished in the in the modern sense. Yeah. So I think, you know, if I had to to guess, I, here I'm on very shaky ground, so please sure. don't, you yeah. know, um, take this to the bank or anything. Mm. But if I had to guess, I think Paul thinks um, something has happened with Jesus's life and death that that does for Gentiles what the covenant did, or something like what the covenant did for Israel, which is not an individual retail model, but a wholesale model mm-hmm. that, um, you know, the covenant with that God makes with Israel is binding, whether each individual keeps it perfectly or not. God still has a covenant with Israel. God keeps God's covenants and Israel is God's people. And I think what Paul thinks has happened with Jesus is that something similar has happened with the Gentiles, that a door has been opened an invitation has been made. And that whether or not every single individual Corinthian says yes, or invites Jesus into their heart or follows the Roman road, whether, whether that happens or not, something, God has done something. And by the way, Paul usually uses theocentric language like that. God has done something through Jesus, not Jesus has done something. God has done something that has made this kind of salvation possible for mm-hmm. everyone else now, because he thinks it's the end of days. He thinks in the, at, here at the end of time, God has done this new thing to invite everyone in. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a uh, salvation then from Paul is more of a corporate thing, not so much an individual thing, maybe more yeah, so I, corporate than individual, I should say. Yes. And that's a yeah. extremely normative Jewish first century way to think about salvation. Yeah. It's something that I it's feel not like an we've individual. lost. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like it's for like the Roman road is just all about you as an individual and you getting other people to go down that road. Whereas for Paul, it seems like it's more, like you said, what Jesus has done, what his death, resurrection has done for the Corinthian church, it's done for the Corinthian church, not just for the individuals of the Corinthian church. Or not, not even for the Corinthian church, for the Corinthians, for the, sure. the, the people yeah. of Corinth, who, mm, whether they no. know about Jesus or not, whether they no. think he's real or not, it, and not only for Corinth, but for Achaia, for the whole province, for the whole Roman Empire. Yeah, that that God has thrown open doors through the through the faithfulness of Jesus. So, last question for you: Talk to the person who's listening to this. Uh, they're deconstructing. Like I told you before, we hit record. A lot of people in our Facebook group have asked questions about Paul. Some people have just stopped reading Paul <laughs> altogether, like I did for a while. Uh, but talk to that person for a minute who feels like very conflicted about uh, kind of what to do with Paul in terms of their own faith and. Uh, their Bible and things like that. Like, what's your advice for them as a professor? Yeah. So my first thing is to go back to what I said at the beginning and say, it's, I think that's legitimate and that's fine. If, <laughs> if Paul has been so hurtful that you just can't pick him up and read him. I think about Nancy Ambrose, the grandmother of uh, Howard Thurman that I talk mm-hmm. about in the book where she just refused to hear it from Paul anymore yeah. because she had been born enslaved on a plantation and had had Paul quoted at her as a a reason for her enslavement. And she said, you know what, 
now I'm free and I'm not going to hear it anymore. Done. I think that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but if you, if you still feel this pull back to Paul and you still feel like there might be something life-giving in Paul, then I think, um, you know, there's some, uh, there's a whole movement afoot in biblical scholarship that can help you read Paul, I think in a more holistic, more healthy way. And, um, getting into some of that literature, I think, you know, not all of them have quite the same overt agenda of redeeming Paul that I have, but it can help yeah. you understand him away in a way that makes, um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So if you had to recommend like one, I know you mentioned a few before, but like somebody's reading your book and maybe they're going to say, okay, I'm going to check out something else. Like what would be the next step you would direct somebody towards? Well, one of the really great, uh, more recent books is from Paula Friedrichsen. It's called Paul, the Pagan's Apostle. And that would be, uh, Paula writes just beautifully, beautiful writer and um, very compelling thoughts behind the words. So that would be a good place to start. Um, And in some of the other, you know, I I think Paul was not a Christian, which I mentioned earlier, is another really fantastic resource by Pamela Eisenbaum. So there's some really wonderful um, reconsiderations of Paul out there for people who are looking for a new direction. Awesome. Well, Paula's book is actually on my shelf. So she's in the stack of books <laughs> that I'm going to get to. Yes. She's a wonderful person. Well, hey, Eric, uh, we're just about out of time. Um, I'm going to have to clock back in from, from lunch in a couple minutes for work, but this has been a lot of fun. But before you go, uh, where can people find you uh, online to connect with you? I have a website that's uh, very little used and update updated. <laughs> so you can find me there. I think it's ericcsmith.com. I'm also on Twitter all the time at ecsmithphd, I think is what it is. So look me up and connect and I'm glad to chat. Awesome. I'll put the links to those things and your book in the show notes and maybe we can do this again sometime. That would be wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Eric. Tell me what you want Because I don't know who to be And I never thought we'd ever see battle again I'm trying to figure out how we lost everything